welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, a special message today to open up uh, a somewhat hidden truth about communion and what it means on this Communion Sunday. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes to the church at Corinth in what was probably the very first or earliest description of, of communion and its importance to the church. Let us hear the word of God. Paul writes, for I received from the Lord... What I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is God's perfect and holy word. May it have its true impact on our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. In this description of the communion experience that we will join together in, in, in having in a few moments, like churches around the world and churches ever since the church was founded. There are many truths that communion is designed to call us to remember. But there's, there's a, a dimension of truth that I would call the quiet assurance of communion that as I was going through this text this past week struck me. It's really found or hinted at in the last verse that I read to you, where Paul said, as often as you eat this bread, you gather together physically in a body like this, and and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that last phrase there, we proclaim the Lord's death to one another and to to heaven, and we do this until he comes. And, And it just struck me afresh this week as I studied it that there's a, a, a connection as we proclaim the Lord's death and we look toward his coming. What, what you see there, I think, is part of what we proclaim every time we take communion and we acknowledge that we've trusted Christ as Savior is that his death will keep us until he comes. I don't know if you can see the, the connection there, but as I've studied it, I, I think that it's there. We proclaim the Lord's death. We proclaim its satisfaction for sin. We proclaim its truth in history. We proclaim its, its deep reality. But we also proclaim that it will keep us until he comes. I find there in that text a link to a teaching that goes throughout the Bible. It's the teaching about what theologians have called the keeping power of God. Now, if you look throughout Scripture, as we will do this morning, the keeping power of God, keeping believers all the way till the end, is taught in many places. 
One of the places that uh, it's referred to is just as I begin here to remind you is 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5, where Peter tells the believers, you are the people, verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Many Bible versions call or translate that or state that you are being kept by God's power through faith. So there it is, the death of Christ. The power of of God through that death will keep the true believer all the way to a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So you see all of history and all of the believer's life and all the events that would transpire until we see him through the death that we experience or whether we're taken by him yet alive in the rapture. We will see him. So there's a quiet assurance of communion that I, I came upon this week and I want to teach you about it. The uh, keeping power of God. Now, uh, to really believe that God is fully committed to us and that in spite of missteps and sin in our Christian life, God will still keep us for heaven is not a natural belief. It's not something that the human mind fully accepts because we're spring-loaded to earn God's acceptance, aren't we? And I remember, and I think I may have told you this story, when I was a, a brand new believer, a college student, I came to Christ through Campus Crusade for Christ, now known as Crew. It was a great ministry, uh, but it was just a Christian organization. It was not a church, and I really wasn't introduced to church for quite a while. I'd never had a church background of much of any kind. Uh, when I was taken to church on rare occasions, it, there seemed to be a lot of ceremony and liturgy to it. I didn't know anything about the Bible, and I only knew the basics of, of how I had trusted Christ, but he was already beginning to change my life. And yet, Early in my Christian life as a, as a college student, I began to uh, fall into a deep battle of spiritual torment over the fact that when I sinned in my Christian life, that my salvation was at risk. I went back to what little I knew, and I felt that I had to capture every sin and confess it and put it out there and ask for God to forgive me again. And I, I lived in kind of a waking terror of missing some sin. And maybe you've been there. That's a not, that's not a good place to be. But I wasn't in a church. I wasn't under the teaching of doctrine. I didn't have a pastor or a group of elders to open the depths of the scripture and help me to understand my position in Christ and my possessions in Christ. I didn't know much of anything. And so I was going like this. It was terrible. Then I uh, was invited uh, with a group of students from, our, from our, our university to go to a student conference. Never been to one. It was at Arrowhead Springs up in the mountains there outside of Los Angeles. And when we got there, they told me about the prayer chapel that was on this huge development, this huge conference center. And there's a small little chapel at the top of a little hill there. And, and I was told you could go in there. And I went in there and just prayed in my simple way as a young believer to God. And I noticed there was a little box down front on a table. And I went down there and I opened it up. 
And it was filled with little cards and slips of paper, and there were blank slips of paper next to it and pencils. And I opened this up and began to read through it, and I noticed that it was people writing down their sins. <laughs> there were some prayer requests in there too, but there was a lot of people writing down their sins. And you know, my mind, it clicked right away. This is what I've got to do. And so I sat in that prayer chapel and I wrote out a bunch of sins in my Christian life and uh, put them in there and asked God to forgive me for them. And then I went down the hill and got involved and stuff during the day. And then I realized, man, I blew it a few more times. I got to go back up to that little prayer chapel and I got to add some more stuff to the box. And after a while, you know, I was my first day there and it was a bunch of activities and I was, I was kind of despairing. I'm at a Christian conference center with a bunch of Christians, you know, and I'm filling the box. <laughs> Wasn't good. I mean, we, we chuckle about it now, but I was in deep spiritual confusion and loss. I thought, this is what it's going to be like. Well, the next morning, we started the, the, uh, the Bible sessions, and I really heard one of the first pastors in my life who was a Bible teaching pastor. Never heard one, really. His name was Bill Counts. He would go on to pastor churches for many years in Texas, mostly. And he was invited to speak that weekend. And he'd just written a book called Guilt and Freedom. And that book turned out to be about the keeping power of God over the believer, over our assurance of forgiveness through the power of the cross, through what communion proclaims. And I heard for the first time the teaching about what you would call the security of salvation. Session after session, God's word poured into my hungry heart and mind, and he helped me understand the power of the cross, that not sins just past, not sins just present, but all the entirety of everything I would do was covered in that great sacrifice. You think that's so basic, right? I, 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 for me, it, it just filled in this great fracture in my mind. I went down that hill, released to peace, and living for him even more intensely, not out of fear, but out of gratitude. That was my experience of understanding the keeping power of God. It's not natural to the mind, but, oh, it is supernatural when someone teaches it over your life. Perhaps that will be your experience today. Because Paul wrote that communion proclaims this great truth, that his death is sufficient for you now, it'll be sufficient for you tomorrow, and you'll be kept in it until he comes. Amen. So, we're going to walk through the keeping power of God, and I'm going to as so many times, my messages are always structured the same. We're going to explain it from Scripture. It's going to be wide-ranging today. The keeping power of God explained from the Bible and the keeping power of God applied to your life. And perhaps it will enrich the communion that we experience together. The keeping power of God explained. There are three texts that I've always gone to in my personal walk, and when I'm teaching others who are confused and believed that they have outsinned the cross. And I want to go to them. None of them will be strange to you. I've touched on them all in my teaching ministry with you. Three wonderful texts that explain the keeping power of God for the believer. The first is in John chapter 6. Please turn there and it'll be on the screen. It is the words of Christ 
And we'll read verses 37 to 40, and let me explain them to you. Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Notice the dimensions. They match what what the the passage in Corinthians talks about. This is a, a text that spans time. Jesus mentions his incarnation, his coming to the planet In verse 38, I have come down from heaven as the God-man, as God who has become fully man. Then then he's gone to the cross, and in verse 39, he talks about the conversion of people into what we know to be the church. All those that, that he has brought to himself, and he will lose nothing of all that has been given to him, but raise it up. What's, what's raising it up? He's talking about the church on the last day. So there's the building of the church. And verse 40, finally, is when, when he leads us all into eternity. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I will do that. This is the promise of Jesus Christ. Now, you go back to verse 37, one of the things that's always comforted me about this when I first heard it from a Bible-teaching pastor. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, look at this, I will never cast out. That is a permanent, committed, unbreakable relationship between you as a believer and your saving Christ. I will never cast it out. And when I, a Bible teacher who I respect, and I still remember hearing him saying in the Greek, this is called a double negative in the, in the Greek language. It could be translated, I will never, never cast them out. So the Holy Spirit, in scripturating this phrase from the words of Jesus Christ, doubled the emphasis. He, he drove it, it, it to, to its place with two shots of the hammer of assurance, if you will. I will never, no, never cast them out. I'm going to say amen just for me. (laughs) If it's got to be amen by myself all day, that's all right. But that is a marvelous assurance, isn't it? Now notice, he says, all that the Father gives me Bible teachers over the years have noted that this describes a very powerful aspect of salvation. It is a mysterious aspect of salvation, but it is the fact that the sovereign will of God is involved in those who are saved. That that segment of that verse, all that the Father gives me, you were given to the Lord Jesus Christ by God the Father. This section emphasizes the sovereign will of God and the selection of those who come to him for salvation. We call this election. It is a doctrine that's taught throughout the Bible. The Father has predestined those who would be saved. It's it's taught in Romans. It's taught in Ephesians 1. It's taught in 1 Peter 1 and in many other places in Scripture. 
Now we look at this and there is a dimension of assurance there. The sovereign will of God has called you to salvation and you were given by the Father to Jesus Christ. No matter where you are in the woven uh, difficulty of understanding God's, God's choice and our free will, you must accept the fact that th- these, these two dimensions exist. Don't throw out the tension without, uh, without losing the assurance. God chose you unto salvation. The Father gave you to the Son and he's not taking you back. Now this may be something that's confusing and it ought to be. It comes from the mind of an eternal, infinite God. But there is assurance. Now listen. In the same sense, look at the next, go down to verse 40. Well, actually you look at this verse, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. There is also the dimension of human will in this and faith You're given, but you come. Go down to verse 40 when he talks about this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Who can be saved? Everyone who looks upon the Son and trusts him for salvation. So there's also the dimension of human responsibility. That little section there emphasizes human responsibility in salvation. Although God is sovereign, he works through faith. So that a person must believe in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God, and the one who alone offers the way of salvation. So God works through faith. To, to even complicate the mystery further, Ephesians 2.8 says, even that dimension of faith is given by God. How do I explain all that? The sovereign will of God decided from time immemorial in the past, your, your need to have faith and trust God. I do not understand how to harmonize those two great biblical truths, but I believe they're true. Intellectually trying to harmonize the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, I'm going to save you a long and tedious journey. It's impossible humanly. But it's perfectly resolved in the infinite mind of God. But I want you to see that you've been given to the Son by the Father. And that as you came through faith, that relationship was sealed. The great point of John 6 is that no one will fall through the cracks in the sense that your salvation is a very powerfully secured thing. I just want you to see that dimension. Don't get hung up on the, on the little ragged points that you can't compute and understand. And, and notice how total it is. Look at the word all in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. A little farther down, he says, and this is the will of of him who sent me, verse 39, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me. The totality of how God keeps his church in salvation. And notice at the very end in verse 40, this is the will of the Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So there is certainty. So that's one of the texts, and I remember that ringing true in my heart. That has always helped me. Here's a second one that goes further in the Gospel of John. Turn now to chapter 10, please. Oh, this is beautiful. Verse 27 to 30. My sheep, Jesus said, hear my voice. 
and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And look at this, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is dramatically assuring. Jesus uses the simple image of holding something in his hands. And there's, there's really a double promise here. A double promise. I mean, when you look at this, um, and one of the, the best explanations I've ever heard is, uh, is described in, in a book by, by James Montgomery Boyce on theology. And he, he, he looked at this text and I'll just kind of read what he said here. Listen, he illustrates it through, through the use of a nail in carpentry. Now, for those of you that know my carpentry skills, you know that I can't even make ice water, let alone change a light switch. So I'm definitely having to borrow my knowledge from a capable source. So He writes, I've sometimes thought that what Jesus did in uttering these words was like something a carpenter often does. Sometimes in rough carpentry... A workman will drive a long nail through thinner boards so that the point sticks out the back. So the nail goes through the boards and the point is sticking out the back. Then with a blow of his hammer, he will drive the point of the nail sideways. Bang! That's called clinching the nail. When he hits it with his hammer, he drives it sideways, embedding it in the wood. That's called clinching the nail, he writes. It makes the joint a bit more firm because the nail cannot work itself out from this position. He says, this is what Jesus did in these verses. He was so interested in getting the doctrine to stick in his disciples' minds that he not only drove one nail, he drove two and clinched them both. First, he taught that those who are his have been given eternal life. He says, I give them eternal life. Bang, that's the nail. This alone makes the truth hold, hold fast. For eternal life is life which can never be lost. If it could be lost after a few years or even after many years, it would not be eternal. That's an interesting statement. If it, we weren't secure, we would just go around talking to people about hopeful life. Nevertheless, Jesus knew that many would attempt to explain it away. So he said, they shall never perish. This is the clinch, boom, by which the doctrine of perseverance is made fast. One nail, however, well fastened, does not always make a good joint, though. So Jesus went on to drive a second nail and clinch that as well. The second nail was, no one shall snatch them out of my hand. So you look at the passage, and Jesus says in John 10, verse 27, my, am I right here? Yeah. My, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Bang, there's the nail. And he clinches it, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them, second nail, out of my hand. Bang. He clinched it twice. I hope you see that. Your salvation is undefeatable. It has been guaranteed by that hammered cross. Now, it's interesting that he also then adds... Uh, adds another dimension, verse 29. Not only are you held within the hands of Jesus Christ, but look at this. My Father who has given them to me, who was given to the Father? You were. 
is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. What did Jesus say there? He said, you're, you're, you're in my hand, and my hand curls over you and protects you from any attempt, human or demonic, to break your salvation. Let's say this is, this is you and I. It's a quarter here. Placed in my hand, I close that up, and you try and come and uncurl my fingers. We're going to have a battle, aren't we? Now, if you're a little stronger than me, I might lose you. I might lose you. But what if somebody else, even stronger than I, perhaps, comes and puts his hand over it like that. You want to try getting at that now? No one, Jesus said, shall take them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. And look what he says right at the end. I and the Father are one. That means two things. Number one, I am God, the eternal Son, and my Father is God, the eternal Father. We have everlasting, ultimate power. We're undefeatable. But it also says the Father and I are joined together. We are one in keeping you. One in keeping your salvation. One in keeping your blood-bought life. One in keeping your God-given being given to the, fa- to the Son by the Father. That is assurance. Here's the third one. How many times in this congregation and in many other congregations in my life, when a person was in the final moments of their life, I've turned to this great passage and read it over their dear heart as an assurance of heaven. Romans chapter 8, please. Verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Where are you right now as a Christian? You're in Christ Jesus. You're absolutely secure. The Father will never reject His Son. You're you're in the righteousness of His Son. There's no basis for Him to reject you. You are His eternally. Now, go farther. Since there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, this wonderful train of truth runs all the way through about how the Holy Spirit keeps you, how the Holy Spirit has engineered your salvation, and how future glory is promised for you. And we get down to the wonderful... uh, set of verses that end the chapter, verse 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? What things? That there is no condemnation because we are in Christ Jesus. If God is for us, who can be against us? The scripture is echoing itself here. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, that's a rhetorical question. Then he amplifies the the answer to it in the following verses. Verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Grant us eternity. Now, there are three possible causes of separation that come up in the minds of people who are Christians, but they're in deep spiritual conflict or they've, they've had a, 
a period of sin in their life, or they've come under false teaching about legalism that they must re-earn their salvation, or whatever it is, sort of like I was as a, you know, a month or two old Christian in that deception. And there's three things that this text teaches that people believe can cause them to lose their eternal relationship with God. Three things. The first is sin. That's what I was wrestling with. That's what you may be wrestling with right now. In fact, as a believer, and people just get shocked when I say it, but you may actually have fallen into deeper sin as a Christian than you ever did as a non-Christian. For you have a great tempter now. You didn't have a tempter before you met the Lord. You had a keeper. (laughs) But now you're tempted. Now you're opposed, and your flesh is still with you. And believe me, your flesh and my flesh are capable of any sin you can imagine and more. So perhaps that's what's happened to you in your wrestling with guilt and the sense of separation. I don't know what it is, but look at what he says in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's a question with an answer to it. No one. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Who is a greater power than the justifying, majestic Lord of the universe? God has justified you. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised. Notice again to the cross. Notice again to the death we proclaim until he comes. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus died on that cross for you. He took every ounce of the wrath of God that was headed in your direction for your sin, past, present, and future. He rose again to prove that it was all accepted before the throne room of God. The payment was made in full. You were called to that salvation. At a point in time, you believed in that great promise. You became his, and you will never unbecome his own. And he has committed himself to you. And now Jesus has ascended. Very important. He was raised. Where is he now? He is at the right hand of God. And he's interceding for us. Now what's that all about? That describes the scene right now in in the heavenly dimensions where God the Father is at his throne. Jesus has risen and sits at his right hand. It's possible to imagine that this This speaks to the accusing activity of the devil. People don't understand this, but Satan is still presently allowed limited access near the presence of God, near the throne room. That'll end, Revelation 12 tells us, he'll be finally thrown out of that access and he'll be condemned to be only on the earth. But right now, through God's own sovereign purposes, the enemy of your souls has you on his mind and he brings every sin that you have into the presence of God, and he accuses you. The Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren. And and Paul says here, as as your sin cascades over your mind and your memory and the guilt escalates and the fear of the rejection in the very presence of God escalates, remember, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That implies a charge is being brought. You can imagine it as an encounter in the heavenly throne room, courtroom. God the Father is the judge, the devil is the accusing attorney, and the law of God is the evidence. You know, the devil does accuse me, and everything he says is right about my sin. Number one, because he led me into it. 
Number two, because he's massively intelligent. And the Bible says he knows the law of God. He knows how deep my sin is at a far deeper level than I do. Because he knows the law of God. And he comes before the great throne. And he calls out my sin and he lists it out before the Father. And he says, you're the king. You wrote this law. Here's one who claims to be yours, and look how she has violated your law. You're the king. You wrote the law. She's violated the law. You must act on your law. You must judge. And into that moment comes the Lord Jesus Christ, according to 1 John 2, who is a a defense attorney, if you will, And he steps into that moment of the proceedings and he holds out his nail-scarred wrists and perhaps opens the robe to show that though he's glorified today, there is still the marks of his suffering for you. And he says, Father, these charges all are true, but I plead my cross. The marks of my death for her. The father's gavel comes down and says, Case dismissed Jesus appears for you in heaven and the scripture also says he intercedes for you on earth he's interceding for you to understand the depth of the riches of God's acceptance in your life even if you've made mistakes as a Christian because it's not natural the assurance of God's keeping power has to be supernaturally understood through the opening of the word of God Perhaps the Holy Spirit is giving you that assurance even today. So sin is something that keeps believers from thinking, well, maybe I won't get to heaven. Oh, no. Second is suffering. Look at this text farther. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He goes back to the cross that communion calls us to remember. Oh, no. People are, are worried that, that they'll fail the Lord under suffering, under distress, under persecution. Will they be unfaithful to him? The scripture tell, here tells us that whatever God leads you to, his grace will lead you through. He will be sufficient for you. And if you are his, you will be carried through that time of distress or persecution or tribulation or whatever it might be. Here's the last one here. Some people believe that the supernatural wickedness of the enemy will somehow defeat and destroy them. And believe me, if you've had a taste of the supernatural side of this world, that's an understandable human fear. Verse 38 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He covers every possible physical and supernatural base, doesn't he? There's debate as to the, the meaning of the terms here, I personally believe that angels, rulers, and powers all refer to the demonic realm. The angels, the good angels rejoice in your salvation and they're fascinated by it. The wicked angels want to destroy it. So the implication here is that all the whole, basically when he says nor height, nor depth, that's the hierarchy of hell. And they will come against you with all they have, all the schemes that can be contrived, all the discouragement and all the, the, the power of hell itself. But if you are his, oh, that, even that will not be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You're his, given to him by the Father, assured by the power of the cross. Oh, nothing, no, nothing. These are the touchstones of assurance that I go to in my life. May the Lord bless you with an understanding from the scripture of how kept you are until he comes. Now, I'm going to wrap this up. I'm going to go right to the, to the last part of there, here, the, the keeping power of God applied in your life. I'm going to move right to the end of this now. People say, do I really have a relationship with God that is like the one you described. People hear a message like this and they, they say, am I truly born again? Am I a person with real saving faith? It's a logical question. Here's three questions that you can contemplate to help you understand whether you are kept by the power of God, whether you have a genuine relationship with God. Here's the first one. Do you have a present trust in Christ for salvation? Now you think, that sounds pretty obvious. No, notice my wording. Do you have a present trust in Christ for salvation? Why do I use that language? Because I'm talking about the fact that some people, um, they, they believe in a past moment, but that's virtually forgotten. They went through a ceremony or a liturgy or maybe even a formulaic prayer at a certain distant point in their life. But in the true domain of their life, that was a past event. Scripture says if you're his, that past event is going to be something that's constantly trusted in your present life. I hope you catch the distinction. Colossians 1.23, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. There is that statement there that true faith is continuing faith. He says, if indeed, and by the way, that's the Greek first class condition, which says, and I know you will. It assumes the truth. True believers not only remember what they did, they, they live in it today. Are you, are you presently trusting Christ as your Savior? Is it presently your joy to know the, the greatness of the cross for you in your daily life? Is it a true present reality? The Bible seems to indicate. 
that that is a dimension of true saving faith. One author put it this way, a person should ask himself or herself, do I today have trust in Christ to forgive my sins and take me without blame into heaven forever? Do I have confidence in my heart that he has saved me if I were to die tonight and stand before God's judgment seat and if he were to ask me why he should let me into heaven, would I begin to think of all my good deeds and depend on them? Or would I without hesitation say, I am depending on the merits of Christ and I am confident that he is a sufficient savior. You may say it's a little thing. Oh, it's a clear reality. So do you have a present trust in Christ? Quickly now, the second. Do you see evidence of a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in your heart? You see, we're not talking about intellectually believing in a religion. We're not talking about assuming a new philosophy that was given to you by Jesus, a philosophy of how to live your life. We're not talking about even a point in time when some ceremony was conducted over you or you were part of some moment of of religious experience. The Bible, Jesus said, unless you're born again, you shall not see the kingdom of God. There's a dimension in which the Holy Spirit rushes into your life and creates new life and you know you have new life and there is a distinct dimension of change that begins to work its way out. 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 to 6. Whoever says, and this is very blunt from the bluntest apostle there was, John. Well, maybe James would give him a run for his money, but they probably argued together most of the day. But anyway, he says this. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. Pastor, how could you say that? I didn't. John did. (laughs) Don't get mad at the messenger, folks. I'm just reading the text. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his, him being Jesus, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is the word of God. You see evidence of a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Have you tasted and are you beginning to see the new life of God in you? Thirdly and last, do you see a life a long-term pattern of growth in your Christian life. This is 2 Peter. I close with this. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. The Christian's life is to be growing in a constant manifestation of the character of Jesus Christ. It's supposed to characterize who you are and you walk into more and more of it. Potholes, yes. Times when you maybe fall back from following him, temporarily, yes. But it is all in all a growth in godliness. He says, verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. That's the word of God. You see, you were meant not just to be a decision, but to become a disciple. What's happening? What is the reality of your relationship with him? Well, 
so much more I had planned to tell you. And I, I know I can't journey into that today because we need to come to the cross which tells you everything and to communion which tells you everything. I'll put it this way. In the Old Testament, God said, come now and let us reason together though your sins are as scarlet. They will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they'll be like wool, Isaiah 118. When God forgives you, beloved, it is complete. That's the message that changed my heart at that conference center. When God forgives you, it's complete. He himself said, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins, Isaiah 43, 25. Does that sound like complete assurance to you? Are you kept by a God like that? I hope so. H.A. Ironside, Bible teacher of the past, put it this way, what you can't forget about sin in your life as a Christian, God can't remember. Because the prophet said he's cast it behind him. Cast it out of, into the sea of forgetfulness, if we could use that phrase. You may never be able to forget the years of wandering and and maybe, maybe sins in your Christian life of which you've been guilty, but what you can't forget, God can't remember because he's blotted them out from the book because your debt is paid. Well, this is our Lord, and as we now prepare for communion, this is our assurance.